This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Sig Sauer. My guest today, Donald Logue. Now, you will recognize him as soon as you see him. He has been in over 70 films and hundreds of television programs, and he always knocks it out of the park. Remember Sneakers with Dan Aykroyd and Robert Redford and Sidney Poitier and Ben Kingsley, just an incredible cast. Uh, Reindeer Games, Law and Order, SVU, The Patriot, Gettysburg, uh, Gotham. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. He got the Best Actor Award at Sundance for The Tao of Steve. That's T-A-O of Steve. Uh, what an incredible film, one of my favorites, and an incredible Guy. So when I saw that this book was coming out about Danny Trejo, and I had Danny on the podcast a couple weeks back, uh, I saw this name, and because it was out of context, it took me a second. But then I realized Donald Logue, amazing. And the job that he does in telling Danny's story is nothing short of phenomenal. Just uh, an emotional story, and one that at its heart is about the power of forgiveness. So uh, he did an incredible job with this, had an amazing time talking to him. And uh, he also has a company that works with Reclaimed Wood up in Oregon. So you can check that out as well. It'll be in the show notes. We talk about it, uh, talk about the forest and uh, our responsibility as citizens and stewards of the land. He also has a trucking company, but what an amazing guy, incredible life story. I hope he writes a book about his own life one day. We talk about that as well. So well, without further ado, let's just get after it. Donald Logue. So when I first found out this book was coming out, I was so excited. And so I have, this is the, my advanced reader's copy here that I got early in oh, preparation yeah. for doing the, uh, uh, having the conversation with, with Danny. And then of course I got the hard cover as well. Cause anytime I get one of these, I always support with, uh, with oh, one my of these God. hard well, covers. So. As a writer, you know, right. It's so critical. <laughs> You do, and and congratulations, New York Times list with Thank this. Thank you. Your, yeah, I know you've been novel. there. It, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing, especially to grow up and you know see that list and look at it week in week out and see all these names that you know, and then to be up there yourself is is kind of cool. But that's something you should be familiar with because of all the films and all the television shows you have been in, Sundance, accolades. I mean, you have done some amazing work and been recognized, you know, for that work along the way. And, uh, when I first got this, of course, you know, I'm like, Oh, Danny Trejo's book coming out. And then I looked at this name and I was like, Donald Logan, like, that thing sounds familiar, but I didn't associate it with writing. Uh, I didn't right. associate it with autobiographies or anything like that. So I was like, wait a second. So I didn't make that connection initially. And then I looked and I said, Oh my gosh, how fascinating, you know, this person I've been watching in television and film for all these years, uh, has written a book with someone else who I've been, uh, have I admired for years. So, um, you know, I have so many things I want to talk to you about, but, uh, before we get to how this actually happened, um, upbringing born in Canada, Irish parents, all of a sudden you find yourself in El Centro and California on the border. Yeah. And how did that upbringing, what, what was that? Uh, what brought you guys to California and how did you grow up? Man, we were vagabonds. You know, my parents were, um, my 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 father had been in the seminary and then my mother at that time in the late 50s and early 60s there was a big push in ireland for the african missions and of course the church had a lot of power 
in the country and my parents independently, they're, they're, my mother's a little older. They had gone to Africa. First, my mother went to Kenya and at the tail end of the Mau Mau revolt. And then my father went to Nigeria. My mother had moved to, to Nigeria to work in this school called Stella Maris in Owiri, and, um, which is down south in the Delta. And then they met and they married. And then they were, you know, they're Irish people. They don't have, um, there's zero generational wealth or whatever. You have a bunch of kids on both sides. They all have to figure it out. Um, in my mom's family, one kid got the farm, you know, and everybody else was, okay, do what you got to do. A lot of them moved to England to become domestics or um, go into nursing or construction. And then my, my father had been in an engine, you know, he had studied electrical engineering in college. And then he went back, they moved, they didn't know what to do necessarily, but they went to England. And my father got his master's in electro, electrical engineering. And then my older sister was born. And then they got a, my dad got a gig in Canada. So they took, you know, they took the, the, the Cunard from Cove Cork to uh, Montreal. My twin sister and I were born. I don't know exactly what happened, but I do know that that first winter was like 42 below <laughs> and like okay. 20 feet of snow. And so um, these, so we went back to England and Ireland and then my dad got offered a job in a company in Massachusetts. So we went there. My little sister was born and then he had to go to Nogales, Sonora, Mexico to fix a piece of equipment. And whatever five minute conversation happened down there, <laughs> it was like, now that's where you're going. So, you know, we moved to Nogales, lived in some hotel. My dad worked there for a couple of years. And then when that um, factory folded, he was offered a job. He was offered jobs kind of all over, but he stayed in Mexico because there were like four employees he wanted to, he felt, he felt kind of indebted to, and he huh. got them jobs in Mexicali. And then we moved to another border town and that's kind of where I'm from. I, I where were you born? Uh, Northern California. So, uh, -huh. uh, but we stayed in, in one place. Um, yeah. so I was, uh, so I had that, that sort of stability, but I always wanted to travel. I always had that, that wanderlust. And I found myself right. actually in Kenya in high school, building a library in a, uh, oh in a Northern God, area of Kenya amazing. as part of like a, uh, I describe it as a Peace Corps pilot project. It, though, right. though it wasn't really, it was a, uh, we had someone at our school from that village. And so we raised money throughout the year and got do books donated. And then we brought oh. them over and, uh, we didn't really build the library. Like we helped them out of hammered, like one nail in type thing. But yeah. that was the, you know, that was the purpose. We're going to go there and help build this library. Although we had no skills in building anything, um, but went there and spent, uh, spent a few weeks and it was a, it was an amazing experience. So, so I always had that, that travel lust from a, from an early age. Uh, and you got to do it, although it was your parents dragging you around a little well, bit, yeah, seemingly you know, because they wanted some warm weather. Said, <laughs> what makes you move so much? And you're like, when, when you're a kid, you just go where your parents go That's and it. they, they were, you know, they were floating. And I always think that part of, um, part of my choice of profession was 99.7%. The fact that it meant building a little bit of a community and a family and then being like, okay, that was, that was fulfilling. That was cool. What's next. And then floating. And I was so good at, you know, going into a new school, it was hard, but like establishing yourself socially or whatever it was, mm -hmm. and then being okay with 
with that ending and moving on and doing, and, it, and it's something that was replicated so much in my acting career. You know, it, it like when you do the Patriot, say you go somewhere in South Carolina for six months, you bond super heavily with a large group of people and then it's over and then the next one's up. And, um, you know, so I, I, sometimes I think, you know, that that's part of the want, the, the wanderlust is never, it's, it's just always there. Yeah. And it's kind of hard programmed into my DNA at this point. Yep. No, I totally understand that. I mean, I'm experiencing that a little bit because they're, they're, we're in the last two weeks of filming the Amazon series for my first novel. Incredible. So it's, it's crazy wow. to be part of that process the whole time. Um, which, which I guess is semi unusual for an author. Usually they want the author to stay away and not say you ruined my vision, you know, on set every day. Wow, um, yeah. but I've been part of that from the, from the first day. How does writing. that feel as an author? How does it feel to watch your stuff be brought to life in that regard? I'm just so happy. I just so feel so fortunate and so thrilled uh, that I got the exact director. I wanted Antoine Fuqua to direct and uh, oh, he's, Chris Pratt he's to phenomenal. star. So yeah. great. And they're such I good people. Such mm -hmm. great people. Uh, and to have that come to fruition, the exact director and the exact uh, person I wanted to star as my main character, to bring him to life, to have to see that Who's come to fruition. starring as the main character? Chris Pratt is, is uh -huh. starring. Oh, so, yeah. And I, I wanted somebody who could, uh, who needed to take a risk as an actor. Because I was right. taking a risk as a writer, leaving the military and uh, going all in into into publishing and writing, and I wanted an actor that that needed to do the same thing, or at least from the outside looking in, I perceived as needing to do that to take a risk and do something different, uh, kind of like Tom Hanks did with Philadelphia, uh, and then that right. opened, of course, the whole world to him after he did that. Um, so I thought, you know, Chris Pratt is the right guy to do this, and then to be part of it from writing the first. Uh, uh, the the first episode, and then having Chris and Antoine and the showrunner walk that around Hollywood, and then get it to Amazon Prime, and then continue get the, the writers' room together and see how that came about and advise on all those scripts. It's been it's been very. I mean, I just feel so fortunate, feel so lucky. It's amazing. I mean, to go from your military career, and you know, I mean, writing as I've discovered is so hard, and it's so fulfilling. But man, what an amazing, but I do think that probably your, um, your deep understanding of training and doing that it's not, it's not enough. Like Flannery, Flannery O'Connor, I guess said, um, everyone thinks they can tell a good story until they sit down to write one. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I it's, love it. That, that I, I remember I had a lot of difficulty writing when I first went to college. I, I think I, you know, I had some kind of, I have dyslexia and different things. And I remember just that the empty page was so um, oppressive to me in a weird way. I just felt like I was in the weeds and um, you know, I wrote this essay, poured my heart into it and I got a C minus, which at my college was essentially an, a deep minus you well, know, or something. <laughs> well, I mean, th this is no, uh, I mean, you didn't go to, you know, any run of the mill college. I mean, you're at Harvard at this point. Yeah, I was uh, at Harvard and, and it was, you know, I, I, there were plenty of reasons why I got in, but um, academically, not in terms of how much I had read growing up, but academically, I was, I was behind all these kids who were, had gone to these schools and prepared them. But you know, I, I remember and I was trying to explain, which is the worst thing. I was trying to explain to my um, professor, Joe Finder, who's a great thriller writer. Um, 
Oh, yeah. What I intended, you know, what I meant. And he's like, what you mean and what's on the page are two different things, man. You know, and he goes, your speaking voice in class is so different from your writing voice. And I pray you find a way to merge them, you know. And um, so I have a ton of respect for writing just because I know how much it takes, how much time it takes and how much hard work. And I can only imagine that your military background, um, you know, I don't know much about that world. I, I certainly have friends who were uh, special forces and SEALs, et cetera. And all I know is that the level of, tra- and I always say it's the training. You go back to the training. It's just how the, all the Q schools and the sniper schools and, um, you know, Marine recon sniper school or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, doing these amazing things. And also how intellectual so many of these men are. It, it, it doesn't surprise me, but, but it does at the same time, like how well-read, how thoughtful, and it's, it's kind of this merging of the warrior poet ethos, you know, that's, that's really neat. And I'm, man, I'm just so glad that you acted upon your instinct to want to tell these stories, you know? Thank you. Thank you. And I think that that military, it's the training and then the experience in that I can take up, I'm doing the exact same thing. Essentially. I'm looking at in the military battlefield. I'm, I'm looking what the, what the enemy's doing. How are they adapting? How am I adapting? Um, where are gaps in their defenses? How am I capitalizing on momentum? And these are the same things I'm doing both on the business side of publishing and then wow. also on the written page, cause I'm just solving problems. I'm aggressively solving problems on the written page. Same thing that I was doing on the battlefield. But if I mess it up here, on the page, I can sleep on it. I can come back and edit it. I know that my editor is going to look at it in a few months. So there's not, there's not that, that stress of being responsible for anyone else other than my family under this yeah. being my new profession. And I want to evolve. I want to get better at it every time. I want to raise the bar. Um, I want people to, uh, the people that trust me with their time to feel like that was that they, uh, invest because they're investing that time. That they're never going to get back in me, whether they're listening to it or they're reading it. Um, you know, I want to be a good steward of that time. Uh, and that trust more importantly. So it's, uh, it, there's not the stress of knowing that, Hey, if I make a decision here, it's going to affect the guys to my right and my left and their families, if they don't come home or they come home missing an arm or a leg or whatever it might be. Now I can, I can write something and you know, Hey, if it's not good, guess what? I can wake up the next morning, have a cup of coffee and get right back at it. So there's a, it's a different kind of, uh, of stress and that, you know, that everyone's going to be looking and there are no barriers between, let's say I wrote something in 1985 or 75. Well, if someone didn't like it, they would have to find my publisher or a magazine or a newspaper that would publish maybe a, uh, a letter to the editor. They'd have to right. write it out or type it. They'd have to then print it or and then find the address, put a stamp on it, put it in the mailbox. It would have to arrive at the building, make its right. way up to that person's desk. They'd look at it and say, oh, this is a crazy person and toss it if they were a crazy person. But today... Right. No barriers. And it's same thing with, no uh, with acting. Everyone wants to tell you probably, you know, how you could have done something better or if you look at reviews or not. But, you know, yeah. people have that unobstructed uh, kind of gateway to you through uh, and, and for restaurants, too. I mean, there's Yelp and there's all these different yeah. ways for. Or there's for even that it's crazy, crazy side, which is and it's hard to imagine that it exists in people. But there are first of all, there are people who their daily job is to do throw out negativity uh-huh. and now they have a forum, which is that God bless it. It's the world. Yep. Yep. Or there are people who are worse. They're the saboteurs who were like, Oh, a new restaurant came out. I'm getting yep. 50 of my friends to, 
to jack it with bad reviews or it's amazing. It's amazing. And I hate, um, I'm like, I'm never, I I don't, I pray to God. I never become a fully cynical human being, you know, but like it's (laughs) out there, but you know, I love what you said about the responsibility to there's a risk. There's always a responsibility in all of these creative endeavors. Um, like you said, uh, you're so grateful that people are taking the time to invest in, in something that you've created. And it's absolutely the very, the same with acting. And then there's the responsibility to the crew of people and the better you can do your job, the more, um, the likelihood that these people who also have families whose lives revolve around this job will have some job security as much as they can have in an industry that doesn't have much. And, and so, um, I, I, you know, the people I respect are the people who have that, that bone in their body, that, that sense of responsibility to the bigger picture, which isn't just about them, you know, exactly right. It's a super collaborative, as you know, especially now that your works are being made into a series and you're talking about the writing room and the crew, Antoine and the, and the DP, et cetera. It's, it takes everybody's effort to make it fully realized. And then in the midst of that, there's some lightning in a bottle that's captured some magic that happens that wasn't anticipated either on your end or you know, and, um, that is kind of a thrilling thing to be around when it happens. Oh, it really is. I feel, I mean, I feel so fortunate. Um, but, uh, in some of these, I get, I get some ammunition actually from, uh, some of the, uh, either reviews or people that reach out on Instagram or whatever it might be that with that negativity side of the house, because of the psychology behind that, it gives me so much for my characters as I'm writing them, because just through seeing how people interact on this new medium where, uh, there's like this, uh, there's this electronic barrier, this electronic safety net, um, which allow you to be much more bold maybe than you would be in person. And I often think that, Hey, these people that want to leave these negative reviews or comments or pick things apart, are they going to be on their deathbed and say, I wish I had left one more negative review on Amazon? <laughs> like, is that going to be their thought? They're choosing to spend their time. We get to make these choices and they're yeah. choosing to spend their time that way rather than, you know, bumping somebody up with positivity or whatever it might be. But, uh, but on Gosh, the set. It's so, it, and it's so easy. It's such a win-win to, it's such a win-win to be kind, you know, because mm-hmm. it, it comes back to you. It makes you feel better. It might be the thing that just is, is something that really makes someone's day. It's never hard to be kind. And, and maybe in a weird way, I've always felt that, and I I think it goes back to having to move so much and live in these kind of, I mean, first of all, not difficult environments compared to the world. You know, what was funny about my father when we lived when we grew up in these small towns on the Mexican border and it seemed pretty outrageously wild and a little lawless and stuff, he said, you know, I lived in Nigeria during the civil war. Like this is, you can't even on the spectrum of, on the spectrum of societal intensity, we are way over here, you know? And, um, but at the same time, I always felt like uh, being a nice person, if you can, and be nice and be kind. It's a, there's also a defense mechanism in it because it, you're trying to win friends. You know, you're just trying to, you're, you're trying to fit in. And 
um, every time, my gosh, I, I just feel like, um, and it's also legitimate. There are so many people who work in any field and I feel so thankful to them for what they, they do and the time and energy. And I'm aware of how much it takes to go for it and try something that it's easy to, to just be nice and, and say something nice about their work, you know, writing a book or making a film or Chris Pratt being the lead in something. None of these things are necessarily easy. They're certainly, um, you know, you get your butt kissed a lot more than maybe you should just for having that job. Um, but the counterpoint is sometimes you get your butt kicked publicly a little bit more than people yeah. are aware of how that feels. And, and so it never hurts to say something. It never hurts to be kind, does it? Yep. No, exactly. And I got that out of the, the book, actually. It's one of the main themes. I mean, the theme of, of forgiveness stood out for me in here. Yeah. The power of forgiveness really stood out for me in this, in this book. Um, and I something I talked to Danny about when I talked to him, um, it, what really resonated with me is something I talked to my kids about, which is almost exactly the same thing you guys talk about in here, is never missing the opportunity to make somebody's day. And I try to pass that along to the kids, like go out of your way, even if it's just by a little bit or a lot sometimes, but to make somebody's, somebody's day, uh, yeah. because there's so much power in that for that person, for you, it might be one second, one minute, five minutes, whatever it might be. But to them, they will think about that the rest of their day. They well, and I'll tell you, they'll pay it forward and pay it forward. And I'll tell you, Jack, like one thing that's crazy about, um, about the Danny story. And I don't really remember this. When I was 25, I was a janitor at, at this place called the West Hollywood Drug, Drug and Alcohol Center. And it was madness. It was mayhem. Like it was a wild time in these kind of 12-step meeting situations mm -hmm. in, in LA. And this was a wild place. Everyone was invited. Um, some people had no time or one time or people were coming in off the street and stealing the coffee, you know, coffee money and um, fighting a lot. And Danny came in and at the time he had a lot of time. And he says he remembers meeting me there and saying, how are you? And I was just snapping at him, which I can't imagine ever snapping at him. <laughs> and he said, and look, you know, 30 years later, we're sitting here together um, talking about this bestseller of his life that we worked on together. And if Danny, if Danny wasn't the kind of guy who would go the extra mile, who would give someone the benefit of some kind of doubt, who um, was the kind of guy, my, when we did reindeer games together, my first son was four days old. I'd just taken him back from the hospital. And I knew that there was interest in me for the movie, but I, I knew that um, the studio wanted Vin Diesel for the part uh, and they got Vin Diesel for the part. And then it didn't work out with Vin Diesel, which actually worked out for Vin Diesel. It was the way it was supposed to be. And I was offered the job. I didn't have a job at the time. I didn't even have an agent at the time. And my manager was like, you've got to do this. And I, and, and it was a tough time for my kid's mom, totally understandably. Um, and so when I went up there, I felt like I was in a rock between a rock and a hard place because I was getting a lot of flack for taking this job, but I knew that I had to do it. And Danny took, when I got there, he could see I was like the weight of the world was on my shoulders and I was really 
in a tough spot. And he reached out and took me under his wing. And, you know, that's who he, he was like, stay close to me. Keep, I'm going to keep eyes on you. And then he did that thing where we go to um, a troubled teen, a home for troubled teens, or, you know, he was like the answer to what is, he goes, you're doing your job. You're taking care of your kids. You're providing for them. You're going to see them in a few days. And right now you just got to go help someone else because that's how you're going to get out of your own head and help yourself. And it's that incredibly strange, selfish component to the concept of helping others because you're doing it for you, you know? And I even think my parents, because I think my mother has a really, she has a a more evolved view of even the notion of um, mission, missionary work, et cetera, you know, because the concept from culturally is that you're going somewhere to really help these people who are so lost and spun without your intervention in their life. Right. Which, which is kind of, there's, there's a funkier element to that. Um, because it, it, you know, it, it, plays into some kind of savior complex a little bit, which is a little patronizing. But she said, you know, what brought me to Africa gave me the greatest gift. You know, if I could help those kids, which I think absolutely she did, um, she goes, that was phenomenal. But it was, the experience was for me. And and I think that's the win-win that you get, right? In helping somebody else. Yep, no, absolutely. And when Danny, when you met Danny on the set of Ranger Games again, although you didn't know you had met him earlier, right. and uh, and you go to that, and you guys are in Canada. It's a crazy shoot. Weather's yeah. insane. There's some personalities I think that are very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're with an, an incredible director, but uh, but you go to this, uh, <laughs> but you go to this this uh, uh, this meeting, and and Danny, of course, is there, and you're wondering how do I know this guy? Kind of like how a lot of people see someone in passing who they've right. seen in films and movies, but not out of context and can't quite can't quite place it. And on the way there, I think you even see two guys in a knife fight in the middle of the yeah, street, a slow motion insane. drunk knife fight because you're up there in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and then you get there and Danny remembers meeting you that one time in the L.A. Drug and Alcohol <laughs> Center. And what what were you doing there, by the way? Was it between had you already had a few jobs in, in television and movie? You know, I point? did. I, I had a, uh, you know, I, um, I had a few. I was working for a traveling theater company. And then right out of college called Cornerstone. And then I came back to Boston. And um, the craziest thing is uh, I, I got a job. I got three jobs at the same time because I was super broke, which is kind of my style of doing things. Like <laughs> going from living on someone's couch and them saying, dude, time for you to fit <laughs> in. And then going out and getting like working 22 hours a day and I'd gotten these jobs and then I was offered a job road managing my friend's, my friend's band, Bullet La Volta, great band out of Boston. And they had a big national tour coming up. And weirdly enough, um, two days prior, I'd run into this, uh, I'd run into this theater director and, um, in Harvard Square and super cool guy, Dave Wheeler. And I, I said, hey man, I'm, I'm so, I'm 22. I've just come out of college. You don't know what, I, I always think of um, 
television, film, writing books, whatever. It's kind of like professional sports, right? Like those people are playing major league ball and you're playing ball kind of, but you go up to an adult who's been around and you say, can I do this, man? Am I crazy? Thinking he's absolutely, you can do this. He might've just been, been, he was trying to be nice, maybe and just move on to where he was going. But he said, you know, they're, they're casting this thing. And it was um, actually turned out to be a mini series based on this Pulitzer prize winning book called common ground. Mm -hmm. And he said, they're having a casting today, go down to this place. I'm going to call them. So I go to some place, there's like 200 dudes in a line. You walk through in this, you know, in this cattle call, you go to a window and you're like, I didn't know there were so many cops in the whole city of Boston, you know, or whatever it was, like a one line thing and split. So my friend offers me this job. I'm bartending, um, road managing his band. And I said, because I'm so naive, I said, man, Clay, you know, I auditioned for this miniseries. And so I, I, I hope I let me hear about that. And he goes, we don't have any time. So the next day I marched down to the casting place and now there was a cattle call with women. And I went up to the desk and I said, um, hi, I'm Donald Logue. I, I, I came in here the other day and I was auditioning for the common ground and, blah. and the woman was looking at me like, what are you doing? You in, this is so inappropriate. And then another <laughs> casting director came in and she goes, who's this? And she goes, just some guy who came in the other day. And she said, we don't do this this way. This is not how this is done. We're busy and you have to leave, which was harsh, but incredibly fair on her part. And so as that conversation was happening, another woman popped her head out from down a hallway and she said, Carolyn, who's that? And she goes, nobody, uh, Meg, it's just he, this guy who came there. She goes, hold on a second. Who, who are you? And uh, it turns out that this was the big casting director from New York who had come up for that day, Meg Simon. And she just saw me in the hallway and then she called me and, you know, she said, come here, I want to talk to you. So we talked for a long time. And then she said, look at these parts, the, like, look at this part and do this scene. And I, I was like, man, okay, Meg, um, I've done a lot of plays, but I've never done, am I supposed to be smaller? Is it, she goes, acting is acting, man. Just do the scene, you know? And so I got that. The next day they called up the director, this guy, Mike Newell, big time dude, did a lot of huge movies, Harry Potter movies and stuff. And um, he came and I got the part. And it was, and I would never say this to another person because it's not, you know, acting isn't a job where putting pressure on someone to find out how you've done helps you. It makes them <laughs> retreat from you, yeah. you know? But in this case, it worked out and I, I got a couple of jobs, but I discovered that um, I got enough, man, I had enough job. I got two jobs, which were enough to make me somehow think in my crazy brain that I didn't have to do telemarketing and all the jobs I'd been doing, which wasn't true. <laughs> and I, I, I moved to New York and I hit the skids. Like I really hit the dark skids, um, with drugs and alcohol. And I had nowhere to live. I burned all my bridges. And so I went back to California and, you know, I found myself on Venice beach. Um, I had enough money 
to buy like a 16 ounce Budweiser and a pack of Marlboros. And I was looking at the ocean and I was like, what happened to you, man? Um, and I made a decision that I had to change something about my life. And, and the, the easiest component to look at was this issue with um, alcohol, basically. And then I went to this place and I met a guy named Chris working behind the counter. Um, amazing guy from South Carolina who's in my life on a daily basis 30-some years later. And he said, you know, there, there, there's a job opening here. Let me see if I can get you a job as, you know, janitor guy looking over this place. And so I got a job there, five bucks an hour. Chris and I got an apartment. LA back then was cheap. Like we could, you could get a place for 600 bucks a month for the 300 each. And that a minimum wage job could cover you. And, and that was the start. That was the start of life. And, you know, for people, um, you know, uh, for people out there, I just want them to know that um, I remember the last drink I had and I, I, I was in this place called the Cat and Fiddle in LA. It was 11.32 PM, I know, because I looked at the clock. I was with a bunch of my friends who had, were these guys who were visiting from Boston. They came out to LA and these are wild dudes. Um, we had a wild times in Boston together. A few of them aren't alive anymore. And uh, I just was like, oh, I can't escape this, this vortex. I always get in on a daily basis. I'm going to change. I'm going to live differently. I want to. And then boom, as soon as I have one, I'm like, well, today's gone. There's no productivity in today. I'm just, and I, I was with my friend Des O'Connor, who's an awesome guy. He lives in Dublin now. And I looked at the clock and I was like, hey, Des, check that out. And he's like, you know, what's that? I said, 11.32 p.m. because I'm done with this shit. And, um, and it's been true. And it hasn't, I, I certainly at that, on that night, I would never have said, you know, 30 years ago, uh, 30 years from now, I'm going to be talking to you on a podcast about a book <laughs> I wrote. And all. Um, but, you know, one day at a time, you do it. And, and the craziest thing was, was, um, you know, I fancied myself so deeply as a funny guy or a storyteller or potentially a writer when I was younger. And I completely um, romanticized the link between throwing down and getting wasted all the time with that kind of life. And I certainly have some good stories from that stuff, but <laughs> um, it wasn't until I had that out of my life that I actually was like, oh, here's something I've written. Here's a film I've done, you know? I, I, so man, the way the universe happens. And then the wildest thing was I was working at the drug and alcohol center and I had called a friend, um, a woman named, um, Peggy Vernu who worked at the Eugene O'Neill theater center. And I said, Hey Peggy, you know, I'm getting it together and I'm thinking about trying to do plays again and stuff. And she goes, well, you know, we've got nothing going on, but call my sister, Mary in LA. She's an assistant for a casting director and maybe she'll have coffee with you. And I, I waited until I had months and months of getting my life together under my belt. And I called this woman, Mary, 
And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, um, Peggy told me about you. Let's meet for coffee. And so I went to this coffee place to meet her, and she didn't show up, and it, which was fine. Wasn't angry, didn't have a resentment or anything. She's busy. And I waited for about another month, and I called her up, and I said, hey, Mary, it's Donald, you know, Peggy. And she goes, oh, my God, I forgot. Um, I go, it's okay. You're busy. No big deal, you know? And she goes, well, we're casting this movie called Sneakers. And we're having a really hard time with this part of a mathematician who's supposed to be like a 50-year-old guy, but we're considering trying to look at younger and older. Why don't you come in and pick up the sides? You know, three days later, I'm at, um, I'm in the room with Walter Parks, all the huge producers and Phil Alden Robinson. And look, this was a movie with. It, it's fantastic. I, I love nailed that movie. That, I mean, Robert you know, Redford, Sidney Poitier. I mean, right. you got, and then I go to the read through and I'm like, I'm sitting between Redford, Poitier, across from Kingsley and, and yeah, there's, Kingsley. You know, oh my God, River Phoenix. And, yeah. uh, and it, just the most Timothy, there was just the cast, Mary McDonald. It was nuts. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I finished the read through and I went back to the drug and alcohol center to start my shift. And then this guy, my script was there. And this guy, Adam, who used to, um, this homeless guy used to cruise around West Hollywood with an electric guitar and a tiny amp. <laughs> nice. Sounds very LA. Dude, he comes up and he's like, Hey man, what you, what's that? I go, Oh, it's a script for a movie. Um, we're on, you know. He goes, man, I wrote a script. I wrote a script. I got it right here. And he gave me this script and it's him and Linda Blair. And it's the bluest thing. I have like the first page. I was like, oh my God. And I just had to laugh because it was like, life is so beautiful and so weird and so crazy. And, you know, I had been so humbled by life by the time I had any um, success in Hollywood that, uh, you know, I was never going to be confused by getting jobs in Hollywood and what it means in the broader picture in your life. And, and, um, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I, anyway, it was such a remarkable, it was such a, it, what a remarkable ride that thing has been in. And mostly because of all the people I've got I've met and the conversations I'm sure like you, I can't compare. I will never compare. There's no comparison to what you've done in your career, right? In your military career. Um, some of my best friends were uh, now, you know, they're green berets or they, they've, they, they put in 25 or 27 years of service. Um, they went deep. They're the kindest guys. I'll never, I just, I'm blown away by their experience that I know I shall never even come close to sharing. But what I do think we share is that you're on these, you know, you're on these projects together and you have this camaraderie and then you you make these friendships and you have these conversations at 325 in the morning when you're cold as hell. Yep. Right. And um, or like on Vikings, you know, you're in the ocean, it's a cold day, everybody's stoked. 
the, the background artists are the most amazing people on the planet. Their attitude is, is infect, is infectious with positivity. And, and someone brings over, they have some styrofoam cups of, of pretty tepid, um, (laughs) tea, but it feels like the greatest thing in the world. And you just will never forget like whatever I, I I have to kind of leave it up to what happens on screen. I'll just try my best. But, um, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I got seriously addicted to in my Mm. life. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I'm seeing a little bit of that here. This is my only experience with it, obviously, but there are so many similarities between my experience on a movie set now and what I did in my, my past life in that everyone is so good at their specific jobs and is working so hard. And one of my main takeaways is, uh, is that hard work from every single person on there. And what most people see, you know, they're seeing a speech at the Academy Awards or or the Golden Globes or whatever it might be. And that's their view or going through the checkout line, you know, at the grocery store and they're seeing a people magazine there or whatever else, like that's their view. And that's the the one person or the two people that are starring or whatever else. But there are on this set, 350 people making that happen. And it's so incredible to see how, so Antoine, he's like the, uh, would be the commanding officer. And so right. he's setting that tone strategically up right. here. And then you have Chris Pratt. He's like the, the troop commander, the platoon commander, setting the tone tactically. And people yeah. are looking to him and seeing his attitude. Uh, and it's just infectious. And you're, there's a mobility guy, just like we have it's a transportation infectious. guy. It's infectious in either direction. Yes. I, they were telling me, I've heard, now that I've gotten to know a lot of people uh, on set, right. um, we were talking about past experiences because they've been on hundreds right. of sets. This right. is my and there one experience. Some, and I, and my, my experience has generally been super positive and I'm just imp- so impressed by people. But, you know, there's this, like on, on Gotham, for instance, mm-hmm. there's just one guy, Ari, worked, um, he, he, he was in, you know, uh, w- they were moving out all the pieces of the set around, like just furniture, this and that. Every time you shift the camera, everything's got to move or something. Now, here's a guy, amazing dude. I'm 55. I think Ari's a year older than me. Um, got his daughter's going to ballet school, and he gets up at 4:30 every morning, and he puts in a 16 or 17 hour day. And you know, here he is carrying a desk on his back up these stairs to move, and he's doing this 16 hours a day. And, and when our job ends after five years, he's on another one for five years yep. and people don't know, I won't say it for what I do. The only, you know, what's hard about what we do on our side of things is it's like for most people, the concept of memorizing hundreds of words and stringing them together correctly is, you know, super difficult, right? Like people are like, oh, that's easy. I'm like, okay, tomorrow I'm going <laughs> to let me see you do a three-page speech it is with emotion, anything but easy. movement, yeah. tears, and a fight scene, you know? And you're like, okay, that is hard. But in terms of the crew working, the wow. transportation department, yeah. you know, the camera department, it, I'm, I'm, I'm so impressed. What people don't know is that um, they work super hard. They work hard in a way that I just did a logging job, which was, I would say a logging job was as hard in terms of physical labor that was as intense as it's ever gotten for me. But I was telling my friend, Raul Morjohn, who's an amazing logger and tree faller and, uh, you know, wildland firefighter. Of an Oregon? 
up in Oregon. Yeah. And I was like, Raw, you know what's crazy? He was asking me about what it's like to work on those movies and stuff like that. And I said, what's kind of crazy is that eight hours, that's lunch. Yeah. And um, he's like, wow. And I go, not for, you know, our job is over glorified, et cetera. But for the people, um, for, you know, the electric and grip departments and all this stuff, you know, they, they deserve that respect oh, yeah. for what one thing America still makes um, when a lot of jobs have been outsourced. America, <laughs> when you come and work on a television series in the United States, you're like, this is something that this country does in better than anyone anywhere. They yep. are, like you said, everybody's in one hour television. If you were the sound mixer on ER, you are here in your world. Yep. Everybody's a stone cold pro. Yep. And, uh, it's cool to watch. Oh, it's so cool. It's so cool. And it, it reminded me so much of a military operation, but almost better because there are, they're so specific on set, it seems like. And we were like cross-trained in all these different things in the SEAL wow. teams, but these on set, these people are so good at their one specific thing uh, wow. and they work so yeah. hard at it. But nobody sees that when you see the final product, you just see the stars up there. And then there's a list of credits at the end that, you know, you, they just kind of go yeah. up the screen now faster and faster, it seems. Um, but those people are putting in so much work and what's been so cool about this is that people were fans of the novel beforehand, like the transportation mobility guys, they fought to get the job because they love land cruisers and I love land cruisers and I have land cruisers in the book. And so they wanted to be a part of it. And, uh, and people will come up to me on set and say, Hey, my, my son's going to boot camp, Marine Corps boot camp. Would you mind signing this book for him? And you know, I started bringing books, boxes of books to set just to hand out to people and thank them. And cause they work so so hard. And the, uh, the viewer at the end of the day, unless they've been involved with the industry at all, they, they don't really see that part of it, but they're working. That is my main takeaway is just how, you know, I was watching, I was watching one of the, um, you know, I was watching one of the Lord of the Rings. It was on in the background. I was writing the other day and I looked, it reminded me of a zillion jobs I've been on in the sense that you, they come into some set and I would say, okay, that I know that's on a soundstage but there's a lot of rock and there's some old, there are these, these statues and stuff like that. And I'm like, I know that some artist out of styrofoam or something made that incredible statue. Someone painted it to look like rock. Like when you step into a set and you're like, man, there are artists, so many artists on every level coming in doing, you know, and, and then, um, when I was doing a sitcom across the street from where I live now at CBS Radford, oh, there was Todd Ayo. Oh yeah, film oh, <laughs> yeah. Seal Team CBS there. Uh, oh so yeah, I was over there yeah, yeah. Oh ago. my God, AJ Buckley is oh, one so of great. my favorite human beings. That's and, right. Um, you guys share a little Irish heritage, and we do, and Irish and slash kind of Canadian. You know, yes, which exactly. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Both. Uh, AJ is just the greatest. Such and, a great guy. Um, you know, there was the Todd Ayo Sound Studios back then where they used to do all of the soundtracks for motion pictures. And you'd see all these people rolling in their cellos or, you know, carrying a viola case or something. And my friend said, look, those people are, you know, they might've been in the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra or even in Russia and some of the best because the best have to be here to do this because they have the composer up front, they're playing film and these people are playing and you're like, the level of skill involved, again, 
you know, top I can make game. a mistake on my end and we'll be like, oh man, let's go back to the top. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry guys. Right. <laughs> you know, but if you're the one person hitting the janky note in the middle of that and they have to go back, oh, oh my God. That's but impressive. Anyway, I'm ta- I mean, I'm so tangential. I apologize so no, much. No, I love it. No, I love it. I, you know, you are so fantastic in absolutely everything that you do. Um, it, it, I mean, there's never a miss. Such, such a professional. That's why you've been doing this for 30 years now and continue to do it. Um, so during that time frame, so you met uh, Danny on set of Ranger games, or you really right. met him earlier, but you were, that's the, uh, that's right. kind of the, the moment that you guys bonded and moved forward, uh, from there. So at what point did you think, you know what, I'd like to write a book about this guy's life one day. When did that, when did you get that, that seed planted? And then how long was it okay. from that seed to, to inception of sitting down and starting to collect these stories and putting them into a book that flows so well and is so powerful. So I wasn't expecting that. This is such an emotional read. It's not just yeah. a, Oh, this is someone's life. No, this is an emotional, honest, oftentimes brutal, uh, an honest yeah. look, uh, at a life with lessons incorporated, uh, that aren't shoved down your throat, but are told in such a, uh, a thoughtful way. So I was so impressed with every part of this, oh, thank um, you. but so emotional, so emotional. That's what caught me off guard. Yeah. Uh, especially that one scene, uh, double life was the chapter, I think, um, where Danny's going to go on stage and he thinks he's going to give kind of his normal ish type thing where he talks right. about addiction and all the rest of that. But then he brings it home to his family. And right. that, reading that those two That's paragraphs huge. in here, oh my gosh, that was just heart wrenching, so emotional. But uh, but when did you when did you think, oh, I we should write a book? When did that happen? Okay, the, the broader stroke is like um, I had written, I had I'd written a novel that it was my first stab at it, and I'd given it to um, an editor in Canada at HarperCollins named Hadley Dyer's amazing writer. And, you know, I went to go work after I met her for coffee. I went to go work on copper, this awesome TV series I was doing up there at the time. And she called and said, we're going to acquire this thing. You know, man, it was insane, but it didn't actually work out. But I had this friend, Lydia Wills, who was a lit agent. And because I was making forays into that world, um, you know, I was just talking to Lydia all the time about potential things to either do with that book or try somewhere else or do this stuff. And so I'm trying to think now how long ago it was, because it was a way it was, I was on Gotham. I was living in Brooklyn. Um, it wasn't a particularly easy time in life, but I, I, um, wanted to keep my legs moving at all times creatively and I was talking to Lydia and she was the one who said, you know what? Your friend Danny should do a book wow. and you should write it. Yes. And, um, and so I was like, wow. And why the book is so deep and all of these different elements. And I think so truthful and inspirational is because that's who Danny is. That's my experience with him. Um, there's no part that Danny plays where he's a tough guy and he's like, you better get out of here now, or whatever. None of that stuff contains the multitudes that he is as a human being. I've seen him speak to people. I've, I've never seen a, a public speaker with his, with that level of power and understanding and um, his emotional intelligence is off the charts. His, and I, 
when we started this book, we got the proposal together and um, I, I ended up at my agency UTA because they're, they're killer. You know, they're mm-hmm. big time. They're awesome. You know, their interest in me obviously is as an actor, but um, they have a lit department and there's a guy there named Albert Lee and um, bird level. And so they were like, yeah, yeah, that's a, you know, we got to put a proposal together and this and that. So I worked on a proposal and because it's Danny, of course, um, there was interest. But then the hard part started. So that was three years ago. Okay. And then it was the writing. And it was so interesting how if you look, I, you know, I was downstairs right now in my house and there are like three or 4,000 typewritten pages of like stuff, stuff wow. that didn't get in, yeah. stuff I wished had gotten in. but it's a weird kind of thing. And I'll be honest about it. It's, you know, on one hand, absolutely. It's Danny's book. There is nothing in there. That's not from his life that he didn't tell me or whatever. At the same time, there's a kind of weird, um, there's this strange thing when you have to write prose, that's also not in someone's voice and matching their voice and matching their thoughts. And because there are these elements you have to fill in, Mm-hmm. There are things that are given, um, you know, and that's where writing the book is, di- is difficult because it, if you heard Dan, if anyone heard Danny speak for five hours, it would be this, it would be this book, but it was funny. Cause at times one of my agents said, well, you know, if you just transcribe like the Stern interview, but if you just transcribe someone speaking, yeah. it's not. There's an element of, there's prose that has to be built. There's this clay that has to be molded. And it's not, it's not the same. And I'm not saying I didn't flail and fail and fall. So I had tons of help. It was a village. Um, Michelle Herrera Mulligan is this editor at Simon & Schuster, who's genius and brilliant and was really, um, you know, she was a taskmaster, but she was also, she was the kind of kick you in the butt and pat you on the butt coach, you know? Uh-huh, okay. There's so through Lydia Wills, I met this woman, Hillary Lifton, who's a writer, a very successful writer. And Hillary was, Hillary said, you know, I'm, Hillary came on board and was like, let me look at your pages. Let me tell you, let me, you know, what would be interesting is you need to ask Danny. This is something that needs to be addressed. I really needed that. I yeah. needed those I needed those extra eyes because I was getting I would get tired too and I would get lost in terms of structure and things like that. And um of course there were Albert was reading pages and Deborah Copakin a friend of mine who's a brilliant writer, uh Amanda Schaefer Brainerd, um uh, Sophronia Scott, these friends I have these three women I went to college with who were just home run hitters. And that is what I think you might, I I don't know how it is where when your process, but you get that team of people who do the same thing. Yep. Right. And you're like, you're the hitters. Um, and they'll send me their stuff to, you know, to look over and just have some ideas about, and I'll send them my stuff. And, um, I think with, I, I think people don't understand that writing is more of a collaborative effort than one in would terms think of, from the outside looking in. Yeah. From no, the I'd, outside looking in. Yeah. I mean, you can totally go 
you, you know, what I do like is it's solitary in that regard. Yes. Like I, I can go <laughs> somewhere by myself. I don't need 18 wheelers full of equipment. I don't need right. hundreds of people to help do it. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, you try and get a team assembled to keep eyeballs on you yep. and have some feedback. feedback. Oh, no, that's so important. Uh, and those people that, so the first one I sent out because I didn't have a deal, hadn't, didn't know anyone at the time. Yeah, how Schuster. did that happen with you? How did that? It was crazy. So I knew I wanted to do this when I was a little kid, knew I was going to be right. a SEAL, serve my country in uniform, and then I was going to write thrillers. And uh, it's because growing up in the 80s, you could exhaust most of the nonfiction about special operations fairly quickly back then in 1982, 83, 84, 85. Wow. And so what else was there after that? Well, there was fiction. There were these thrillers by guys like uh, Tom Clancy and Nelson DeMille and AJ Quinnell and JC Pollock and uh, David Morrell and all these guys who had protagonists with backgrounds that I wanted in real life one day. Right. So I dove into these novels. My mom was a librarian. So I grew up surrounded by books and a wow. love of reading. Uh, and I knew that yeah. one day after my time in the military, I would write. And what I didn't realize I was doing was giving myself essentially a, a PhD in the art of storytelling. Um, and my mom introduced me to Joseph Campbell's work very early on through a series wow. of interviews he did with Bill Moyers on PBS called The Power of Myth. And I had some books come out after that as well. But, uh, but I learned about this hero's journey and I just kind of incorporated that into my life, the things I read, the things I watched on screen um, mm -hmm. and just knew that would be my path one day. And so as I was writing, as I was getting close to being at about a year left in the time in the military, and uh, I was about four months into writing the, the first novel and someone reached out to me and said, Hey, uh, a guy I knew from the SEAL teams who had gotten out and gotten into finance. And he said, Hey, do you, I heard you're writing a book. Do you, uh, you think you want to talk to some guy named Brad Thor? And, uh, I said, yeah, well, he talked to me very successful thriller novelist. And, uh, they said, yep, I've helped him out on a couple books uh, on the SEAL side of the house and let me hook that up. So talked to Brad Thor and, uh, it was kind of like a job interview. He wanted to know I was writing for the right reasons. And I, you know, told him the same things I just told you right now. Right. And, uh, and he said, okay, Hey, if you write one, uh, your friend told me some things that you did in the SEAL teams, uh, downrange. And as a, a thank you for that, if you write a book, I can let my editor know that it's coming as Simon and Schuster. And, you know, can't guarantee they'll open it. Can't guarantee they'll read one page. Definitely can't guarantee they'll like it, but I can let them know that it's coming. Well, and I said, yeah. uh, that's all I need. And, uh, he said, when's it going to be done? And I said, a year from today. And, uh, he said, well, don't send me any pages. Don't, I want to, I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to give you any advice, but if you finish it, call me back. And so I called him back a year later to the day and, uh, said it was done. And then off to the races, it was sent it to Simon and Schuster and they loved it. And next thing you know, that is insane so. for the first one in <laughs> crazy The first one in. So I feel very, that, very fortunate. That's for sure. Uh, and that's, very well, it's meant, yeah. it's meant to happen. I, you know, I, I don't, it, what was a little crazy about my acting career was, um, you know, looking back on it, sneakers without an agent or whatever, my first, um, my first few auditions without representation, I got the part. And Amazing. it's that weird thing where it could take 20 years. It might never happen. Yeah. And I also think if I didn't, I probably wouldn't have chased that carrot if it was too hard for me. Right. Like, um, but also I was getting validation from it, but that's, I, I think with writing, it's so much harder. I, um, well, I don't know. It's, it's a pretty tough uh, road there. 
in uh, in Hollywood. I mean, I, I see it. I see because I'm seeing the audition tapes come in or I don't even call them tapes oh, these man. days, but I'm seeing those come in for all the different parts. And this is during COVID. So there are nothing's yeah. in person. So I'm seeing all those and I'm seeing some pretty, <laughs> you know, big name people that are in their kitchen that are recording things. And I'm like, wow, this person uh, still has to audition because from the oh, outside, yeah. you think you think, oh, this you person don't... has it made. They People just are calling yeah. all the time, wanting them to work. But I'm seeing these people, some of them that I yeah. grew up watching that are sending in these, you know, five minute tapes, three minute tapes. Tapes, yeah. two minute tapes, whatever it is. And then we're discussing them as executive producers and, and, you know, picking one or looking at a couple back and yeah, forth. And there are a lot of good people. A lot yeah. of actors don't know, you know, they get so upset. They're like, man, I really knocked that one out of the park. And I remember there was a job I had and I was on the other side of the table auditioning people. I was already set. And it was, um, it was a, a pilot that never went, but was really brilliant by this guy, Brad Hall. Uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus's husband and 10, 12 women came in for the part for the test audition before we went to network. And out of those 12 women, I would have said as an actor walking out of the room on a scale of one to a hundred, I, I would have felt that they were anywhere from 97.1 to 99.8. Uh-huh. Everybody hit a homer. Yep. And so I just try and tell people that there are so many talented and good people out there and that you wish for them the best and that you, um, and don't get down on yourself. And if you have a really good audition and it doesn't work out, that doesn't mean you didn't leave an impression, a positive impression, but it is so hard. I, I, if I allowed myself those moments when I was in a casting office and before there were submitted stuff online, You'd be in these casting offices and there would be (laughs) 10,000 headshots stacked against the walls. Wow. And you're like, wow, man, it's pretty overwhelming to think you're just, you know, and I will say this about, it's so crazy. When I did the Dow of Steve and and, um, won Sundance for it, after the award ceremony, which was totally, you know, which was crazy. So fantastic. Thank you. And they were so brilliant. It was written so well and directed so well, but, you know, but afterwards, um, I'd never, I, I hadn't had that kind of recognition or something before. It's a confirmation sometimes of a little bit of a suspicion you had, but I had done so much work at that point and big time people were coming up to me, really nice people. And they were like, this is so exciting. Is this your first film? <laughs> and I was like, it's my 37th. You know, and what it made me realize is, is you're not on the radar screen until you're really on the radar screen. And it's, you know, and it's not negative. It's not unfair. It's not bad. It's none of those things. It just, you got to know that Mm -hmm. when you get involved in it. Cause I, cause a lot of people take stuff personally, you know, um, uh, I think rejection from writing is probably feels more personal and more direct. Um, no one else to blame, really. Uh, it's no uh, one it's, else. You, know, you yeah. can't say, oh, that director, I knew we shouldn't have done it that way. Or, oh, that right yeah. last minute change in the writing. Or I wanted to take the character this way. There's no, oh, yeah, I would like have that. done it this way. Or, or yeah. the other thing, which is a cop out is, oh, you know what? They, they don't even know what they want. They're just like, you know, I want something more blonde or, you know, it's not true. It's, there's a lot of talent out there. And, um, but I, I think to be, you know, someone told me early on, you, you know, 
and, and Danny reinforces this all the time. It's like, you know, high tide raises all boats. Yep. Generosity of spirit. When I was auditioning at the beginning of my acting career, my stable of guys that were, we were of a similar type were like Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, John C. Riley, you know, um, Dylan, you know, Dermot Mulroney, Dylan McDermott, and um, Donnie Wahlberg came into the mix and Frank Whaley, all incredible guys, all, all friends of mine. And we would see each other at these things. And we would know, of course, you know, we all, we have families or whatever we have to do. Um, we're going to give it our shot, but I'm never going to be like, I can't believe yeah. they gave it to him. There's all these super talented people. So um, I'm not saying it's not hard. I, I, I'm, I, it's been interesting for me that, cause I've done a lot less acting work in the last couple of years than I normally I'd done in the 10 year prior clip, which was a little bit insane. You have but, done uh, a lot. It's incredible to look at this body of work. It's absolutely incredible. And I wanted to ask man, you about I, that too. I wanted to ask you about that. Did you, did you take a breath? And when did you get into this? Uh, the, 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 is it Frisson? Is that how I say it? Frisson low hardwoods in oh, Oregon? Yeah, like, Frisson. Yeah. Kevin Frisson. How did that all come about? Cause I saw you know, that. So that was, and I want to get one of these, by the way, because we're in a rental right now. And uh, hopefully at some point, oh, moving into a better man. place. But it's I'm going to be in, in company. Your way. I would, I'm going to be in contact with you guys. And I was looking at the woods online. It's so beautiful yeah. and everything you guys are doing. So how did that come about? So, so you know, I, I after Terriers was canceled, this TV series I was on, I was kind of like, man, I don't think. Um, I, I knew it wasn't going to get picked up, but my contract was still in place. So I couldn't get another job. Oh, wow. And I had this big chunk of time and I just felt kind of disheartened. And, uh, and so I, I ended up getting my CDL to drive. I saw that too. Trucking. I mean, what was yeah. it Ashling trucking? Ashling? Yeah. So yeah, Ashling trucking. Wow. And I, and so, you know, Amazing. the people that, um, ran the college up there, the truck school, um, I became incredibly good friends with and was blown away by their humanity, their, their attention, how they, they had to change their teaching style to fit the individual needs of the 12 people in class. There are a lot of people who are coming to these things because they're in a work program um, that, you know, the, like a job program that says, okay, uh, they're receiving public assistance or something. Some of the people hadn't worked. Um, hadn't had a job and they're 40 years old at this point. And there's a lot of psychological barriers at play and how these people work through it and encourage them. And I watched people change their lives. I watched people who hadn't worked, who, you know, for, there was such a, there was such a kind of wide array of people. There were a lot of people who were um, veterans. So they had come from, they had come from a totally different background. And then there were people who, it might have been from families that were multi generational welfare recipients, which God bless them, leads to a different mindset. And couldn't quite believe that this was a reality for them, that they, they were going through the steps to check off some box for somebody. But to watch people say, No, you can do this, you can be the one who changes your life. And they did, you know, and, uh, and we're still in touch with those people, but I became friends with Bud and Kathy. We started this little trucking company and, um, and then there was a big snowstorm up at my ranch and, a uh, an oak tree, part of an oak tree fell through a airplane hangar. Um, and so I asked Bud, I said, man, 
I got a problem with these trees. And he said, well, Kevin Frizen, this guy, you've probably seen his thing. It's down the street from us. He has a tree service. So call him. So I called up Kevin Frizen. He came up and he was like, we were looking at the work that needed to be done and standing there in the snow. And he said, what do you want to do with this airplane hangar? And I said, oh man, you know, I have some friends in Texas who build mission style furniture. So I was thinking about maybe putting a kiln in and getting a mill and doing quarterson oak and stuff like that. And he goes, that is my dream. It's been my, my lifelong dream. Um, you know, that's all I've ever wanted to do. And I'm like, well, then we're doing it. Boom. Let's shake hands. Let's start this hardwood company, you know? And, um, and I operate like that a lot in life. It's a little crazy, but I think the benefits far outweigh any potential negative experiences I've had, you know? Amazing. And so built out a kiln in this airplane hangar, got a mill. And, uh, and then I was off back at Gotham all the time, you know, I was yeah. back in Brooklyn, but yeah. So I've learned so much from Bud and Kathy Williams on the trucking side. I've learned so much from Kevin Frizen on the hardwood and logging side of mm -hmm. things. And, um, you know, those people like, okay, you've got 150, you know, like say 122 foot pine tree that's about to go down and yep. it's somehow it's in this mobile home park. And it's like, you know, who's scampering up that thing and topping it, you know, like these jobs that people do that are so tricky, so dangerous, so intense, you know, and, um, God, I have so much respect for them. I, I just, it, it blows me away. And they're never not fully realized people in every regard. They under, you know, I, it, I could talk about them forever, but they're just um, the neatest people, hardworking people. They've taught me a ton, you know, because when I first, when I first got, when I first got close to a semi, I'm like, Oh, how exactly does the fifth wheel operate? And you know, you don't, it, it, there's nothing intuitive about it. It just has to be learned yep. and it has to be learned in a specific order very quickly. And, um, I'm excited to get back up there. I've never driven. Now everybody's moving to automatic trucks. Okay. Okay. And, uh, you know, which personally I'm like kind of down with the non- <laughs> It looks so complicated. And I've thought about that. I put thought into that because every time I have a character with a possibility of stealing one in a novel or, uh, you know, taking one, whatever it might be, like they have to have a background. You can't just, if I was just to get into that thing right now, like I, you yeah. wouldn't know what to do. So I have to, I have to yeah. think about those sorts of things as I'm no, writing. You, so I've run into that a couple times with that semis. Would be, I would love, yeah, hit us up. The oh, one I love thing it. That'd be amazing. Thank you. Because yeah. that's happened on more than one occasion. I've had, I've run into that. Yeah, because I will say this, um, you know, like in a car, if you're not totally comfortable with a stick, it's, it, it, it still has a lot of, it, it's forgiving in this yeah. weird way. In, a, in an 18 wheeler, if you're not, if your tax speed and your road speed don't match, if the engine speed and the trucks, it's, it's not going into gear, which is why it's so dangerous now, an eight, a fully loaded 18-wheeler with a 53-foot trailer at the top of a 7% grade, like you'll see right. at the Grapevine or Siskiyou's yep. or something, if it was rolling forward, just rolling forward on the downhill, 
it's hitting 100 miles an hour within 10 seconds. And as as the road speed increases, it's changing the gear ratios. Like you're not finding that gear, which is why the runaway truck ramps, et cetera, are so important. Um, And, and you know, and no one thinks of it, but there's tens of thousands of trucks on the road right now it's an underpaid job. Isn't it the largest it's employer of people in the country or isn't it like the largest industry or something? There's something. I think it's the largest industry. Yeah. I don't, you know, and it's, it's, it's a bit tricky. One thing that we, we have a truck driving school called Ashling Truck Academy up in Oregon, incredibly great school. And they take the time because there's, there's a lot of the schools I think just stamp out CDLs. Uh-huh. There are some really bad ones, which actually have a deal with some shady dude, in the DMV wow. and they're throwing people out on the road who need a gig or, or there's weird stuff and it's so dangerous. Yeah. It's terrifying for the driver. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, it's, it's just intense. You don't want knowing what I know, you don't want undertrained people out there and they shouldn't be underpaid. Yeah. The trucking industry needs to, there's something that needs to happen. Every big rig that you drive by on the freeway is like hiring drivers now call because there's a, Generally speaking, they turn over drivers in eight months because they burn them out. They come out of school. They jump on the road. They're in over their head. It's hard. They're away from their family for five or six weeks. Um, And it's, and they're just enough of it. So what you want to do is, you know, we think that for a trucking company, their most valuable asset is not a new $160,000 pound dollar Peterbilt. It's the driver, right? Like, there we go. And, the operator. Uh, and I, yeah. I, I think with, with the military, as yeah, you know, very similar. I was just going to make that comment. Yeah. Well, as a, Especially at your level, you know, some millions of dollars of training probably yeah. went into where you had to get, Yeah. um, which is why it's the best, you know, but no, that's exactly, that's exactly right. It's, you're uh, the, it's the operator, you know, the gear, gear is great. You got to learn, know, know the gear, but also when that gear fails, then it comes down to that individual operator, to that team, uh, adapting, you know, thinking, figuring that out the so problem. It's, uh, <laughs> it was a good time. It was a good, it was a good 20 year run, but, uh, but I'm also very, very happy to be now with I my family just, doing what I love. Oh my God, to make that transition and to do this podcast. And I have to say when, you know, I watched your interview with Danny and um, your podcast with Danny, and I was like, wow, you know, your humanity, your understanding, it comes through so quickly. And it was interesting because immediately you zeroed in on parts of the book that personally speaking, and with Danny, I was like, oh man, I remember when we kind of, I remember when that became clear to us or that crystallized and that was kind of the key. And, and when someone else, um, when it resonates with someone else, it's like I had said before, a confirmation of a suspicion that you were onto something kind of special. You guys certainly, you know? certainly were. And that is, uh, that's evident from the, from the first lines through the last, um, speaking of the the first and the, and the last, they're kind of, they kind of connect in that, on reindeer games, I love this part, and it. it's how you end the author's note at the end. 
and all this stress, all these personalities, daylight, you're losing the daylight for the shot, which I understand now having been on yeah. set and trying to get these different scenes yeah. and you're dealing with the light and then you're dealing with, uh, with, with the union time, how long people can be there and all these things. Right. And you're calculating all this stuff and, uh, and you're on this set and it's losing the light and they're, they're cleaning up the tracks on the snow to make it look like there's no one has walked there yet. And then you lose your footing and you're about to cause this, oh lose the sea. You're about to cause uh, this yeah. uh, all this work that's gone into sweeping the tracks away, uh, mess that all up. And then this hand like comes out of nowhere. And boom, yeah. And by the way, you know, it. the thing is, if I had pitched forward and fallen, which I did, <laughs> if they had to, the company was moving to Vancouver the next day. It was done. The trucks were in motion. The, the if for some reason they had to spend a day to get back to pick up a single shot. It was pushing, it would probably be, I don't know, a $3 million mistake. Yep. Yep. And, um, you know, which is not always a good pressure to be aware of because <laughs> there, there, there have been times where I've broken a bone or something and they're like, can you just, you know, You've got to get through it because if you don't, it's costing millions of dollars yep. and really messing up the program. And there are times I resent that about our industry too, <laughs> you know, because you can't just go, dude, I got a family emergency. I need Larry to fill in for me today, yep. you know? Um, but yeah, so when that happened and I fell and all of those things were going through my mind in that nanosecond and Danny, and it was the weirdest thing about Danny he's so strong. He's not a big guy. Like, you know, and I'm heavy and I was, and he had <laughs> he totally had me like a movie Amazing. just floating off the ground. I've seen him do it a couple of times. I saw him do it one time to a guy who had a knife. It was so crazy. He was like this knife and it was kind of crazy. And Danny had him by the throat. And it was like, um, one of those movies where you see the feet just like, uh, yeah. you know, like in yeah. air where they cut to the feet. But He's done that a few times. There was another story about a guy named Skip. They'd gone down to do Machete, and this guy Skip was kind of like a, a mayor of Austin and um, unofficial mayor of Austin. It's yeah. like, everybody goes out on my boats before we film. Supposed to be a really nice guy. And um, he, he'd let someone else drive his boat, and he was water skiing. And the guy didn't know how to drive the boat. And he had a sandbar and Skip came into the back of the boat by oh. the propeller and the guy oh. panicking threw it in reverse oh. and complete at full engine speed. And Gilbert Trejo was like, I saw that guy going into the propeller, you know, and before anyone in, I don't even know how he always does that. Like the kid that Danny saved from the car and yeah. Danny had Skip big dude one handed out of the water. In water. And I remember like when my dog used to always swim to our boat up in Oregon and I'm like, Lulu, you're <laughs> yeah, yeah. go back to shore. Yep. And she'd go back and me and my kids are trying to lift a 50 pound dog yep. into a boat. And it's so, there's something about the, uh, the and how Danny did that with a grown, like a 200 pound man. It's crazy. But anyway, you know, the myth of Danny Trejo is what's crazy is it's so not only is it real that there are so many other, at the end of the audio book, what they let me do was I read my collaborators notes chapter, and then they let me go on this 10, 12 minute spiel about some other stories in my life with Danny's 
that they included in the audio book. Awesome. And I was listening to it and I got so emotional because it, um, it was, it, it, it's the kind of thing. And it was interesting in this book because it was Danny's book. I wasn't going to chapter 17, me and Danny, <laughs> right, right. With me, no, it, me, me, yep. it, it's that weird. You don't want to include yourself in the narrative. It was enough of a intrusion to put the collaborators notes in, but I think it was, um, in a way, it's a nice companion to the piece. But oh, it yeah. sure is. I mean, th- just Man. the author's note in this, the same, the same thing. And one way I t- did that uh, podcast with Danny, the first thing he says is he talks about you. You know, the first thing he does. God bless him. You know, Danny couldn't be. He's such a you know. God. He's he 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 just called me an hour before I jumped on this, and he couldn't be more generous of spirit. And and by the way. That's what we were talking about at the very beginning of this podcast. It is nothing. That's Danny's go-to move. And it means so much more. It means so much to me to be, um, to hear that. Right. And it, and it, and in this world, it doesn't always happen all the time. Right. It, and, uh, you're not included, which is why I like mentioning, um, Michelle, the editor, and Hillary, and yeah. Deb, all the friends who you know who put in time because it gets cold out there when you're like, "Hey, wait a second, man! I put a ton of time into this manuscript as well, and no one mentioned my name." You know, and I do know that there are hitters out there who they're like, "Okay, Simon and Schuster, or somebody's going to pay them money." So and so comes out, and you're like, "I want to do a book about my life." They interview them for 14 hours and then someone goes and writes the book of their life, their right. autobiography, right? That right. happens a lot. That's probably but more I prevalent, do, I think. I don't have any really too much experience in that side of the house over there, but that's what I would right. guess would happen. I, I think it's more prevalent, but I also think that you can read it, like yeah. you see it. Well, then you can look at what the person's doing in life nowadays, especially. And you're like, when did they find time to write this 600-page book about their life while they're at the same time doing all these other other things? I think they might have had a had somebody help there, and that's you know that's that's how it goes. That's fine. It's the way, yeah. And by the way, God bless him. It gets given work to people, yeah. and but yeah, man, to, to, writing this book took. Um, but I, I was I, I was so. Um, this is probably you too, as a, as a kid, you know, when you're writing stories or drawing pictures or reading books and you're like, your dad's like, go to bed, you know, it's half one. (laughs) And you're like, oh my God, I didn't, seven hours went by because you're find the thing in life that you love to do that makes the hours melt away. And when you're shocked, looking up at a clock and going, whoa. Yep. Because that's what God's telling you that you're supposed to be doing with your yep. life. Every right? time I sit down to write, it's like that. And uh, and I love every single second of it. I love every part of it. I love the editing. I love coming up with the idea, outlining, writing the book, then edit the so whole do you thing. Outline, I love all of it. Do, do you outline pretty pretty fastidiously or I don't do it as, as, uh, as much as some other authors that I have, have talked to, but then some authors don't do it at all. they're called pantsers cause they're writing by the seat of their pants. Right. But, uh, what I do is I come I'm up, a pantser and a pantser. it's a mistake. Uh, so yeah. I, I have, yep. Uh, so I, I do outline and I outline. So I write a one page executive summary, kind of like what you'd write on the, uh, the flap of a book. 
kind of like the sale, the sales pitch almost. Right. It gives me direction. And then I take that one page executive summary and I turn that into an outline. Uh, and thus far, it's been three parts with a prologue and an epilogue as, a, as bookends. And right. then I take that and I start writing. And I don't let, if I, during the, this is the most important part is in the middle of that outline, if I come to a part where I'm like, oh man, I'm going to lose the reader here, or this is not going to make any sense, or how is he going to get out of this one? Or I just go around it. I just, as I know I have six months, seven months, eight months, a year right. to figure don't it stop. out. And I know I'm going to figure it out because it's not like the battlefield where I have to decide right here. I have to solve it immediately. Yeah. I can sleep on it and I know I have a year to do it. So I just keep going. And then I turn that outline into the, into the story. So that's do you how ever it's been find, thus far. Do you ever find when you're writing, like, I was pantsing a little bit on that first, um, on the, this novel that, mm -hmm. uh, was called Agua and um, and is now being changed to Mexican. Like it's coming back to life. Nice. So, but there was a thing where the the hero kid and the bad guy are in this bad situation, and I'm writing and I'm like, okay, he's in a bad spot. Like, how the hell is he getting out of this one? And then I remembered, like, oh yeah, man, the dog or so you know yeah, whatever yeah. Right, it is right. that I've had around the whole time that I've explained is there and do you ever find yourself going oh yes oh yeah it oh, revealed yeah. itself to me in the midst of forward motion yep sometimes it's like that other times it's when I'm in the shower uh, because that's when I'm not being the only time I'm not being interrupted at the house it seems like yeah uh, so it's that uninterrupted uh, work that interrupted thought that deep thought people call it but uh, but I do I've going along and then I love those moments because it's almost like an original thought even if it's not it's original to you uh, even if it's right. all of your past experience all of your past conversations everything that you've read everything that you've watched whatever it might be it feels like this original thought. And, uh, and there it goes. And then the story moves forward. Uh, but Man. those moments, I love those moments. And those are some of the ones probably that you write for. I mean, I haven't looked at it like that up until we just talked about it here, but as you're going along and you're doing the work and you're, you're moving the story forward yeah. and then you hit that aha moment, you solve that problem or you're like, ah, solve that. Yeah, I love what you were saying is it's solving, a, but I've never even heard it put this way, which I love aggressively solving yep. problems. Yep. Aggressively solving like, problems. That is it. What I, what I loved about James Worthy's game, we used to watch a lot of basketball um, back in Boston. Of course, I was a Celtics fan. Um, my friend Clay was a Lakers fan. And he's like, we were talking about James Worthy, and he goes, how he goes to the hoop, there isn't a millimeter of wasted space in the movement to the and and Clay's this amazing guitar player and now a phenomenal writer and director. He just nice. did this movie with John Cena that's coming out soon that's hilarious. And uh, and everything that Clay does in life, no wasted notes on the guitar. You know what I mean? Yep. No yep. jive frill Efficient. or anything like that. Efficiency. Yep. And it comes back to but aggressive efficiency is Yep. Is, Solving those uh, problems, being as efficient as you possibly can. And that's what I noticed from set also is how efficient everyone is because they are so good at their jobs. They're at the top of their game and they're so specific. Uh, they're, they're so good at it. So that efficiency moves things forward. And uh, from me as an observer sitting there in uh, what video village with, with my screen and everything, that's, yeah, that's yeah. when I'm looking at everything and just I take that all in. And that's what I see is just professionals out there at the top of their game, knocking it out of the park and working so hard because that, oh, that's yeah. what happened. I mean, that's when people talk to me about writing or anything in life, SEAL team stuff, whatever it might be, is that I can guarantee 
that it won't happen if you don't put in the work like that, that, that I know if you put in the work, I I don't know, you know, may, it may, it may not, but if you don't put in that work, guess what's not happening. If you don't write that novel, guess what? It's not getting published. Uh, Yesterday, Ice-T wrote something on, you know, it was one of those, you know, Ice-T's wisdom, by the way, Ice-T is like one of my favorite human beings. Oh, that's so great to hear. I love hearing that because I'm a huge fan. I work with him on SVU. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, God, he's amazing. His life wisdom and experience and gratitude. And he was like, don't be surprised with the results, the results you got from the work you didn't put in. Or <laughs> there something it is. Like that, right? There it is. That's exactly right. That's much more eloquent uh, than, than I was putting it. But uh, yeah, that's amazing. Oh, I love that, it. I'm yeah, going to go look that, uh, look that quote up because I've been a, a fan of his from, uh, from the earliest of days. Uh, but that's, that's it. It's about doing that work and hopefully... The kids are seeing that because um, they see me working right. hard uh, quite a bit. They put up with a lot while I was deployed, that sort of thing. Uh, hopefully, the sure. pendulum swinging. How back. old are the kids now? So I have 15, 13, and ten. And oh, awesome. uh, so yeah, so they were each alive or born for uh, for at least one deployment. The oldest one was there for three deployments, and and uh, I, had, wow. uh, I had more than that. But and thank you yeah. so much for your service. Oh man, thank you, thank you for the support. I appreciate that. It was oh my god, like what a. I will say one of the most, um, um, you know, this, I didn't have much of an understanding or appreciation and still don't because obviously I never, I've never been in that field. I, I have, you know, my, my friends have, but when I was in high school, I went to American Legion Boys State. Oh, I did. Yeah, I read this. So, you know, I went to Cal, I went to the American Legion Boys State. State. So American Legion, at the time, all I really knew about the American Legion was that um, they had a bar in town, this little clubhouse place in El Centro. And it was guys who had served. And, um, you know, and we were so far removed at that time in the late in the mid 80s. So this was 1983. It was far enough away from Vietnam. But then again, Vietnam was weird because so many of me and my, my, my friends and I, our cues culturally were like, oh man, we're into Woodstock. We're into, you know, and it was, and then you would. And so I went to, um, I was chosen to go to this thing called Boy State run by the American Legion. And then we did mock government and things. And there was this guy who, there were a number of guys, these guys who gave up their time for this program. And this one guy took me under his wing, this World War II vet, you know, and he, um, and I, I mean, I'd certainly read some books and I, but I didn't know it until I had, I knew somebody who told me what yeah. service meant to him. And one thing he said that was so crazy that hadn't even entered my my mind at that time, he goes, there's nothing in history that's guaranteed. Mm -hmm. Like we wake up every day and we're like, oh, okay. You know, New York's there and they have the Knicks and this is here and there's that. And there's a border crossing there and this is, and our car's running. He goes, none of this is guaranteed. There have been a lot of decisions made. There have been a lot of sacrifices made that, and need to continue to be made. And, um, and so I became such close friends with this group of men that from the American Legion who took me under their wing. And I got to go to 
Washington, D.C. And then I got to go travel and speak and meet Reagan and oh, wow. speak with Ronald Reagan and do these things. And, um, Amazing. you know, it was it was so transformative that uh, and I remember going back to El Centro after this and I my my best friend, Clyde Carson, his dad, Bud, you know, I used to repair lawnmowers and he was older and I'd, he just watched Dodger games and smoke lucky strikes and repair lawnmowers. And I remember being in the back of their house and I saw this painting of a, what turned out to be an SBD Dauntless, this plane. Wow. And I was like, Bud, what the hell, dude, you paint? He goes, oh, bit of a hobby, bit of a passion, you know? And I'm like, what's this? And he was telling me about his service in World War II. Wow. And I was like, how dare me to look at some dude, you know, sitting in a lazy boy, smoking a lucky strike, who was like, oh, man, crotchety bud, you know, bud, the L.A. Dodger watching bud. And he was telling me about being a teenager and hanging off the side of a ship and having to jump in the ocean and go to this place Amazing. and doing something that I will and have never and will never have to do in my life. I will never understand that level of service, no. you know? Well, um, that's amazing that you had but, that experience with those guys. And and uh, my grandfather was killed in World War II. He was a, a Corsair pilot, Marine pilot, killed off Okinawa oh in 1945. God. So I grew up with this touch point, even though it wasn't a physical person I was sitting down with because he didn't make it home. But I had these black and white photos of him and his plane and his squadron and his medals and the silk maps they used to give aviators back then. So if you hit the water wow. with a paper map, you know, it would disintegrate. But if you had a silk map, it could be wet and still, you know, be fine. So I grew up with all that, all that stuff. And it was just something from an early age, which I think was was because of that touch point with him that uh, that I had this understanding that, hey, so many people, not just in World War II, but from the inception of this country up until today, have sacrificed so much so that I could make a choice. I could make choices in my life and I could move the ball yeah. forward for me, for my family, for the, my community, for the country. Uh, and I yeah. owe them that respect by using that time uh, in a way that moves that ball forward in a positive way and make a positive impact on those around me, whether it's one person, wow. whether it's 10 people, uh, no, who, no matter how big that circle is, but that's what I owe those people who gave up everything so that I could be on that beach in, Cal in Southern California doing push-ups or running the obstacle course in SEAL training when it might be a little cold, a little uncomfortable and people are quitting in droves. I was like, wow, these guys let me make that choice to be here doing what I want to do, testing myself and I'm not quitting. Ooh. So it's, uh, so, so boy, quit, not quitting. Ugh. That's what life's all about, yeah. which is another chapter I love in here with when Danny has, has that, uh, that the, the brain issue and he's learning essentially to walk yeah. again. And that chapter was so That's powerful. How you end that chapter with, I'm going to take one more lap. You say, in there. Dan it was so amazing. true, you know, cause that's life and God bless him. Life. He looked over at He looked over at that old guy who was a stroke victim. Yep. And he was like, well, well, you know, he's like, we got to do it, buddy. And then Danny was like, I am that guy. Amazing. And outside, you know, yeah. And life hitting challenges in life. It is no fun. It's no good. I hit a, I hit some big, I hit some pretty heavy things six years ago, physically that, I'd never been that guy that was like, whatever it was, five jobs at once or traveling or flying overnight and stuff. I'm like, whatever I, whatever it is in life, I know I can get by on an hour's sleep and I can somehow pull it out and do that stuff. And when you hit a physical, neurological or some kind of challenge that is like, whoa, 
And then you feel like that thing that I've always relied on, that I've taken for granted, that I've sometimes mistreated, isn't there for me anymore. And somehow Danny, like he, you know, he's flying around with two subdural hemorrhages. International flights. It's incredible. He's got a, you know, he's got a broken jaw. He's having a brain bleed and he's talking like this. And the director's like, is that the choice uh, (laughs) for a tough guy? And he goes, oh, yeah. I think it makes him tougher. That is a one just, tough guy. I mean, and actually in reading this, what I also thought was, man, had there been some different circumstances earlier on, maybe some different influences earlier on, man, he would have made an incredible special operator in the military. Like wow. with how tough that he is, how resilient that he is, like incredible. Like that. If, if I think that they had too much of that, you know, because Danny had a record. So he went down, he tried to enlist in the Marines, oh. but he was, he had a record that he couldn't, you know, he had this big juvenile record and, but his uncle Gilbert to avoid trouble. So yeah, went to, it when it was an airport. But I, I think maybe you recognize, even when I was, even in the early eighties, early to mid eighties in El Centro, I had friends who were given the option of busted or yeah. Marine Corps, which I think was, it changed their lives forever. Yeah. It was the most positive. I don't think they do these programs so. anymore because they probably feel like it's unfair or something weird. And you're like, no, it's unfair. It's unfair not to have these programs. But Danny, you know, Gilbert, his uncle was a a paratrooper. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to know more about that story, uh, that side of it. You know, it's mentioned a couple of times in here and was a boxer in the military and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I was I was fascinated by that side of the house as well. But yeah, had had there been some maybe different influences, I was like, man, this guy would have been in the jungles of Vietnam as a special forces guy, you know, as a SEAL and just crushing it. Um, and but I mean, what an amazing but amazing story. You know, we wouldn't know the story then today, you know, or who knows, maybe we might. But uh, but yeah, everything that Isn't you it get, crazy. It's life so crazy. is so but but That's sharing stories with each other, getting to know each other and 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 us sharing stories are things turning left or right and uh, you know. And what I always love too is we're here today, you and I talking. We're alive on this date on planet Earth. The sun is shining. Whatever good and or bad that's happened to us in the past, um, we've made it through and arrived at this weird spot where we're sharing yep. stories with each other. Hopefully, people out there are list will listen in on it. And hopefully, I haven't been to um, I, I hope I haven't wasted their time. Oh, no, no way. You've shared some such, such valuable insights and, uh, and I certainly appreciate it. Uh, you taking the time to do this. Uh, you have so much going on. I mean, my goodness, what the blogging, the trucking, but the, the, acting, yeah, the, the writing. The, the, oh my god! I gosh. can't wait to send you a piece from the hardwood oh, company. Well, I can't wait. Like, I want to, I want to buy one and I want to get the, the mantles I was looking at earlier. Cause I'm envisioning yeah. our next. Oh my God, Kevin beautiful. yesterday. So, so what people have to know is what we do is, um, Kevin's tree service. You know, he gets hired to do all those kind of tree removals from highway sites or weird. So, or fallen trees or so it's we we're we're doing we're basically repurposing we're we're mm-hmm. we're reclaiming we're we're taking things especially up in Oregon where a lot of times you know they were like oh man there's these old walnut trees and some guys some old timers trying to cut them up for firewood and you're like no <laughs> yep. dude yep 
this is a this is a walnut taste. So um, that's that's kind of where we come up upon the the logs that we we use. I did do a logging job. Yeah, I was going to ask I, you about that. So this so, is a new, a relatively new job. This you is just new. Did? So one thing is, and we see with the fires up in mm -hmm. Eastern Oregon right now, and that's just the way it is now forever. It's just, this is the new world. And I am in so many ways, I am completely um, on a kind of progressive liberal side of the fence. I absolutely believe that we have to take care of our environment. I think plastic is killing us. And, you know, I do think with forest management, we have a problem in America because it became a super bad word to go in and do anything to forestry. Yeah. And I can see- Best of intentions in too, I think. You know, I, I like best of intentions. You know, you see- Best of intentions, but the, but the broader story is yeah. right now, you know, you might have a few hundred square miles at some point that have completely burnt down to cinder nothing because you weren't allowed. Um, the old forestry management program, some that, some that they have place in Europe, you know, where you're, where you're actively cleaning out the ladder fuel, yeah. where you're spacing out some of that. So up in Oregon, because of the drought and because the last 20 years have been tough, in my forest, I can see how, how much trees are suffering. I can see what kind of spring growth is on them. And I see the bark beetle infestation that's so uh, horrible, you know? Yep. So a tree, you know, as you know, the immunity system of a tree is to create healthy sap. And it makes it difficult for these invaders to come in, like our own immune system. Mm -hmm. It operates so much like a COVID virus. It's so crazy. But, you know, and once a tree gets sick, and it allows those invaders in and it starts to create a, a, a sick group of trees. Yeah. And then, and then you're going to start taking out forestry by the truckload because it's dead. Yeah. And so you have to allow some kind of um, selective cutting. You have to allow these fires will travel along the crown system of the trees. And so there's a couple of things that shifted my idea because when I, when I first started acquiring land up there, the whole thing is, and it still is, is to create an incredibly natural forest setting that's as healthy as humanly possible for people to share and to enjoy. And, um, and like I, you know, and it, uh, and I almost lost it last summer in the fires. It was just, you know, Kevin called me. He's like, he grabbed the only box of stuff that's important in my house. And he's like, dude, I'm so sorry. It's gone. Yeah. And somehow the wind shifted and it was a miracle upon miracle. Thousands of other families weren't so lucky. They lost their homes up there. And so um, we have to, you know, together do something in these Western states. There are these machines now that are these big, huge mulchers, the size of Volkswagens that go on the end of excavators. And they just you can go through and you can mulch all the ladder fuel and, you know, you just have to. So when, if you see a, and you have to have a mix of the right hardwoods and softwoods and, and the way an ecosystem works, but if there are too many trees competing for limited water resources, they're all just suffering. Yeah. And so you have to kind of be, and trees do that themselves. They make a decision 
who to send carbon through their root system to trees are in trees are the greatest thing of all time. Like, you know, they, they know who their family members are. They send them food through their root systems. When they're about to die, they do an extra push of car. It's just the most incredible. We're all sentient. Yeah. Everything is this sentient thing in this weird way that wants to, it wants to live and it wants to help its, it wants to help its offspring have the best chance at survival, you know, and all of us, all of it, everything. And, um, you know, so yeah, we're all uh, connected to that land somehow. I mean, we've had uh, a very, very slim section of human history where we didn't have to be, um, where you could call 911 for some help, where you uh, could go to the grocery store and get your food, where you didn't have to build your own house, uh, or you didn't have to have some sort of a, a friendship yeah. or an alliance with someone who could do those those things, and you could contribute other ways. Um, yeah. But you have that connection to the land, uh, which is evident when you see the the site with what uh, what you guys are doing, the first in Logue Hardwoods. Like that's that's uh, so apparent from just even just skimming that uh, that website. Um, but yeah, that, that forest up there, I mean, it, you need management. I mean, it has to, you gotta, you know, take a look yeah, at it. Every, just and make you know, decisions Danny, and, what Danny said about, you know, the juvenile offender program working in forestry. That was so great. And then they took it away because they felt like, I don't know the exact situation, but apparently someone decided it was cruel and unusual or whatever. Uh, and you're like, you know what's risk. cruel and unusual? Taking away the first time some kids feel get any self-esteem from what they're doing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Esteemable acts are the only thing that build us up from the inside out. And that's where I differ. I think than some people, and that's what I think I learned a lot through recovery too, was this weird way. It's like, you're not going to get anything if it's handed to you, you have to want it yourself. And the thing that you work for feels 7,000 times more satisfying on a soul level than the thing someone just the apple some guy had to walk down to my house to give to me today you know like and you're investing back into something whether it's your country whether it's your community whether it's that environment that forest where you are and your own soul work yeah exactly and that's the byproduct of you're putting putting that that, the byproduct and it's win 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 putting in that sweat equity no matter what it is uh and yeah putting in that sweat equity uh, on a physical level and then also on that intellectual level and studying studying that land understanding that the forest up there understanding uh how it changes and how what you need to do to be a part of it not just an observer from the other side like at a zoo or something behind glass like you're a part of that environment up there which means there's a responsibility i think for us as humans as citizens of the country and of the the world uh to be good stewards for that next generation once again just like those people who sacrifice so much for us well also we owe some Something else to this world to pass that along a little better. And that would be something, yeah, absolutely. And that would be something that's so fun. And that's what I want to, you know, my, I have this weird fantasy. And I do think though, that if you visualize it, it kind of comes true, right? Where you're like, I want to be in my log cabin, writing books and working and being, and be in the forest. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> that's exactly I've been it. working towards it and it's happening. And, um, but you know, that for young people to get involved in those programs of, and planting, and you just can't go pell-mell and plant 7,000 pine trees in a row. It's not, 
but you know, you there to take a class on it and study, and I'm just learning about it and the way you have to have meadow space and mixing and um but yeah, to be stewards. I do know that um I do know that human greed is is a tough one. Like as a as an ant, we're a pretty tough species that have, you know, we we're gonna clear out stuff that we want for us. Um, but I do think that there is some room in conversation when it when it comes to um forestry that it's not an either or scenario. Yeah. No, exactly. You know, and I have those I have those arguments slash discussions with my neighbors up in Oregon because they'll be like, well, yeah, you know, the tree huggers stopped logging and now they've got, okay, so now you've got 700,000 acres that burnt down and now what do you have? True. But at the same time, I'll say, but look at the logging job behind our place where they completely blasted the side of a mountain to make it look like Mars. For some reason, the company didn't get busted for leaving two gnarled old madrone branches sticking out of the mm -hmm. ground as like, oh, no, no, we satisfied. We didn't clear cut. It's like, it's clear cut. And there has to be somewhere, there has to be a middle ground that we need to acknowledge in the other human being that I kind of see what you're talking about yep. too. Yeah, but now we have data. Now we have data. We have data from Europe. We have data from this country. We have things we can look back on and say, oh, let's make some wiser decisions going forward based on this previous experience of our generation and the generation before us. And let's make good decisions going forward. And also, right, who's who's giving us the message? Just because you're from tribally speaking, uh, uh, not my side of the fence yeah. doesn't mean I can't listen to what you say or God and and hopefully that you might listen to what we, you know, yep. it's not this us and them. And, um, you know, uh, up where I live in Oregon, uh, my neighbors, uh, George Bowes, uh, Rick and Lori Lowe, you know, there's just a few of us out the, in this, in this where place we are. And we depend on each other for safety, for survival. Yeah. Um, you know, Rick was the fire captain in Shady Cove and, I let his horses run in my land and he always keeps an eye on me and my kids and my place. And that's how we live. And I love it. Like I love it. And I, I would say the same thing about my neighborhood here in Los Angeles. Um, but I believe in uh, that we're in this together. Like Danny said, we're on the Titanic and we can beat each other up over deck chair placement, but we got to get it together. Um, to some degree. And it also makes our lives more, I don't know, it just makes life more satisfying. It's, it's on a, on a human spiritual level. Yep. No, and it's know? a little more pleasant too. And we can uh, work together to, for the benefit, not just of us, but of, of the forest up there where you are. And uh, my mom evacuated yesterday uh, up there close to where you are because oh, uh, of a fire. And uh, I remember as a little kid getting woke up in the middle of the night because those, uh, those fires were, were encroaching. Um, but uh, you know, just, but it's neighbors. Once again, very few people middle of the forest. You're seeing, you know, you're seeing the forest over this from, for now for me. Oh, geez, 48 years now. Um, but uh, but seeing it evolve and change and seeing those things you talked about, seeing the, the logging companies, some that took care of the land, others that kind of left it maybe in a little worse shape. Um, but yeah. point being is now we have this data and uh, and we owe it yeah, to the forest. We owe it to those animals that live there. And we owe it to these future generations to make some good decisions based on that information. So, um, but yeah, I love that you're up the there. The animals are going crazy, by the way, Jack. Like 
I was up there and it was a hunt, you know, it's 116 in the forest, in the mountain. Like I grew up on the Mexican border in the desert. I understand heat, but it doesn't make any sense for it to be happening in a high mountain meadow, you know, and the bears and everything. There was so much behavior that I'd never seen going on with wildlife because I just think that they were like, what the hell is happening? Yeah. Um, So tough. You know? So tough. Yeah. Gosh. But I love that you're Friends so connected to the land Boston. that you can share that with people. You can share that experience through through the, your, the company here, the hardwood company, because someone who wants yeah. a, you know, wants a beautiful mantle uh, and they they know you or they heard about, you know, you through this or some yeah. other other way. And all of a sudden now they have this new appreciation or this this connection, however tangential it might be or removed it might be, but it's one one more data point to see how you have uh, you know, actor mo- now are attached to the land through this company that's doing amazing things and beautiful things for people's homes uh, and, yeah. and using this reclaimed wood that might would have probably you know, got thrown thrown out or burned or you know who knows what else. Man, wood is so beautiful and so amazing and durable. I just, there was some cedar planking that was um, on this old deck that was you know exposed to the sun for 35 years, wow. untreated, beat down to hell. And you run it through a planer and it looks... And it's Amazing. ready to go for another 70 years with some Thompsons, you know, and it's just like, it's so cool. But, and then my kids are going to start, um, my youngest and Kevin's youngest are going to start working on the building, the tables. Oh, and nice. it's like families, you know, it's families can do things together to help each other. Um, and, and why not? You can start whatever. I, I hope my kids say, you know what? Look at dad, man. It's like, you want to drive a truck? Do it. But it takes work to do it. It took a lot of work and it took some, it, it was definitely, you know, passing the, passing the, getting my CDL and the, you know, I was so nervous for the driving portion of my, of my exam. Yeah, I bet. Because they're not joking around. They're not like, hey, dude, I right. love your sitcom. Right. Don't even worry. You don't yeah, have to good. back this sucker in a 45 <laughs> or a 90, you know, um, because it's it, and and, you know, there was so much personal satisfaction to setting a bar for yourself, sometimes almost arbitrarily to going, could I do that? Yes. OK, show up that day, show up, get through every, you know, there are steps in this thing and then pass the test. and then. Um, you know, and I hope my kids or other people see that, that they can be like, wow, you can do, you know, the results are up to the universe. I can't say I can write the manuscript. I don't know how someone will respond. I love the fact that someone will at least give me a shot and read it, but you can do things in life and decide to do them and then just, yeah, it's just about doing it, yeah. you know? Yep. Yeah. No, that's why that Nike symbol up by up by you actually. That's why we we all remember it. Uh, so all these years, all these years later, uh, you know, you have to you have to do it uh, at that base level. My dad had the first. I, I remember my dad had a pair of Nikes in 1973 to run the Boston Marathon with. Wow, wow, that's some old school stuff right there. I'm gonna bronze those ones. Old school, and my dad ran it. My dad ran it in like 315 with such limited training. I was like. Oh my God. And I started running when I was seven because I wanted to be like my dad. And I've become such an old, heavy, um, 
broken down middle-aged guy. And I was like, oh man, I could run, you know, I ran all these. When I was 11, I, I won a 10 mile road race with Steve Scott, the old American record holder in the mile in 104.47. And I think, I think about like acting and writing and stuff like that. It all kind of came from, and we kind of touched upon this earlier, the don't quit muscle. That's it. Because when you're 10, when you're 11 and you know, like a doctor doesn't know what the hell you're talking about. If your foot hurts and they're like, well, what are you doing? And it's like, well, I did a 12 mile run. And they're like, what? Like, you know, back in the oh yeah, late, back in the <laughs> 70s, a it's lot of a California, a lot of kids have been doing a lot. We were doing those things like high mileage, but what it did was it taught me how not to quit whatever the endeavor was. Um. Mm -hmm. Yes, things will get uncomfortable. Well, that's in here. I mean, this guy never quit. And uh, you know that and I was going to ask you that too when you now having, you know, been in this business for 30 years, having written this book, uh, all these life experiences that you've had, when you get asked by by your kids or uh or you're passing along lessons, is there something that that's either a mentor passed along to you or something that you discovered along the way that, uh, that you pass along to people who are in, let's say junior high, high school, college, um, when they're asking you about, uh, moving forward in life or making a transition or making a decision. Um, was there something that you learned from Robert Redford on set or from, or that you just discovered because you persevered and you went through yeah. a lot of tough times? Um, is there something you pass along? What do you tell your, your kids or other people's kids? Uh, well, you know, it's, forward? I, I would think this is, it's pretty interesting because of course it requires the footwork, right? Like, um, you know, uh, okay. God's going to help you dig that hole, but he's not going to move the shovel in your, you know, yeah. whatever, you know, those things. And like, you know, my friend Chris used to say, um, when you're, when you ask God for help, when you're running to get through the run, don't ask him to tie your shoelaces at the beginning, ask him halfway through or all the, but it all makes sense to me. But I was in, so I went to high school on the Mexican border in a, in a town that's pretty intense. Like I have to say, which I love to death, but we did have like about a thousand students my freshman year. And it was a high school that graduated 274 out of that okay. group. Right. It was, um, by all accounts, it's not a, some fancy place. It, it's a it's um, El Centro. Oh yeah, which I'll, you you might be jumped familiar out of a few with planes the, there because the Naval Air Station yep. down yep. there jumped out. Right? Of, did some free fall um, stuff there. So it was interesting because I had a friend who was I, I met a guy who was a SEAL, and we we he knew me for a while, and then he's like, "You're from El Centro." It kind of gave him a new level yeah. of understanding and kind of respect in a weird mm -hmm. way. It's like. How the hell did you get from there? But so I had this teacher who was really brilliant named Chuck Talley. And I was doing um, speech and debate and stuff like that. So I got involved in like nerdly pursuits, which I, pers uh, which I tell all kids do. If your high school offers you some kind of fun thing, like a dr it starts with like drama club or speech and debate or mock trial. It's like, don't think those things are stupid because they might inform stuff you do for the rest of your life, oh, yeah. you know, and you make friends. And so we were from that part of the corner of the state. And, um, we went to, I remember going to the state speech championship sophomore year. And I was just so terrified of, uh, even in athletic competition, 
kids from Los Angeles or San Francisco or Orange, you know, know, all these places, they must eat different food. They're smarter, (laughs) they're wealthier, they're more confident, right? They're just, it's, you know, you're there to try and maybe not embarrass yourself, but no one's expecting you to win, you know? And so the next year, my junior year, Chuck Talley and my friend Steve Maddox, another teacher who were so influential in my life, they were like, why not you, man? I want you to think about something. Why not you? Those kids haven't read more than you. When I listen to you, they're not brighter than you are. I don't mean to be arrogant and egotistical, but you have to say this to yourself sometimes. Why not you? And why not me? You know, and I won the state speech and then the boys nation thing happened. And then all of a sudden from going like, am I going to go to JC or what am I going to do with my life? I, all these doors opened up for me that were all the result of a couple of decisions. And I can pinpoint the exact moment of each one critical decisions made when I was 16 years old that I easily could have been like, you know what, I'm going to go to Clyde's house and go smoke some weed or something right right now. Like, Oh man, forget that. And, um, and I would say that to kids that there, you know, don't underestimate the power of these little junctures in life, a positive decision, contrary action. But I will say the why not me speech that Steve Maddox and, and Chuck Talley gave me will make me cry. And I say that to kids all the time. Why not you? And that does not mean I'm sitting on the couch, God, figure it out because of why not me? That's not how it happens. But you miss, to get back into these funky sayings that we've been kicking around, you miss 100% of the shots you do not take. That is it. Wayne Gretzky, right? That is it. Um, no, you know, that is it. I think it's so powerful. I love that so much. And I think it's, I've kept you over an hour longer than I said I would. Uh, and I sincerely no, appreciate you taking this time, but why not me? That is exactly what I thought about buds, about seal training, 80% attrition. I'm like, Hey, 20% make it through. That's where I'm going. Uh, there's no reason it's not going to be me. I'm putting in the work. It's certainly not going to be because I didn't put in the work to get but there. That's so, it's, same so thing for writing. it's so beautiful and amazing. And it's like, um, but there is that weird thing where you're like, someone else has done it. Yep. That means I can too. Yep. Exactly. exactly. It wasn't like their level of pain was any less. I know that they mm-hmm. understand suffering, yep. but, um, you know, my only experience really with that is like two things. One was when I was an athlete and, um, which is so terrifying, you know, like a big game or a, all eyes yeah. on you oh, and yeah. your teams, right? Or, or, or like, you know, there's a big crew and you've got a big speech and you'd better know it or else everybody's going to be disappointed mm-hmm. and money's lost. And so you got to be prepared and come in and do your thing. But um, the why not me thing for kids should be so powerful. You can be from, please don't believe that you're from some place that it can't happen, yeah. you know, because you, it can, yeah. it can. Why not you? Good things, you deserve good things in life. That's it. That doesn't mean that you can't be disciplined, be a quitter, come up with excuses. You'd better find your way through that thing. But, um, you know, I always, so when I went in for the audition for sneakers, I had no agent. 
I was working as a janitor at this drug and alcohol center and I walked in and there were all these Oscar nominated and Academy Award winning, you know, all those, those people sitting up against the wall. I still remember who they were and their faces. Great guys. Amazing. Amazing. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> hey, why not you? I mean, I know that I guess I had earned the callback because they had seen me in earlier rounds do this thing yeah. that they liked. And I saw these famous people and I go, what am I doing? Okay, I'll just go in and I'll get through it and like as fast as I can and not take up these important people's time. And then I thought, why not? Wait a minute. Why not me? They've... I'm blown away by seeing these people in this waiting room, but to them, they know them. They're all in major league baseball. So they're not tripped out when they see Barry Bonds in the waiting room. Right. They're looking for a new person. They want a new person. Everybody wants you, whatever it is in life. If you're in a job interview, if you're auditioning for something, whatever it is that you do, everybody wants you to be good. They want you to do well. No one is saying, come into this room and collapse in front of me. Mm -hmm. That's our own self-doubt doing that to ourselves. And as someone who's done it many times, where the pressure I put on myself, not to succeed, but not to fail. Yeah, there's a difference. I was, so I was so potentially, I was so scared about the humiliation of what if I did badly. And of course I did badly because that's the pressure I put on myself. If I wish the best for myself and similarly for others all the time. Yeah. There's a difference between just surviving and prevailing. An old Vietnam special forces guy told me that a long time ago. So the difference between surviving and prevailing, but I love that. Why not you? I'm going to go tell my kids that, uh, right after we get off here, but, uh, you know, so this is amazing. Uh, I mean, I'm a huge fan of you even more so now. I'm so looking forward to getting up there. I want to talk to you more about the, uh, the 18-wheeler stuff and the trucking for future novels. Yeah. And then I definitely want to get a mantle from you guys in the next uh, in the next. Awesome. I think Kevin's going to be super excited. So that cool. Kevin is excited that I was uh, talking with oh, you Oh, man. Today. Too cool. Too cool. Well, please yeah. tell him hello from me. And uh, I'm going to be in touch with you guys. And then also for you, I mean, such an amazing job with this. And what also kind of triggered in my mind when I was reading this is that, um, and through this conversation as well, is that I hope someday that you take all these lessons and life experiences and maybe write this about your own life. Um, because oh, man, what a be story so that is. And then turn that into a screenplay because what a story that, that you have personally um, with your life and your upbringing and, and uh, the, the resiliency and, the, and the, everything you had to do. It's just an incredible life story. And I hope that, uh, that you share that personal side because the work is obviously incredible. The work stands on its own. That's established and it's everything you do is amazing. Uh, but then sharing that life story and that behind the scenes and that struggle and those lessons, I think that, uh, that people would get, uh, get so much out of it and it would be uh, fascinating to read, emotional to read. Uh, and it would make a, a wonderful series or a film. Thank you so much, man. I'm, I can't even, I'm, I'm so, uh, I'm so honored that you asked me to, to join you oh, man. today. And, uh, yeah, we'll have to catch up and I'll have to get you, uh, the mantle of your oh, dreams. Man, I'm so excited. Yeah. That website's amazing. Welcome to the gear highlight section of the danger close podcast. If you followed me for a while, or if you just happen to look in my background on these podcasts, you will know that I am a fan 
of sharp objects. So when I saw that my friends at Birch Barrel had teamed up with a knife maker in Bozeman, Montana, I could not help it. I had to get one. So I ordered one of these. Bam. Check that out. Incredible. I think this is made to look like a trout right here, but I will be getting a lot of use out of this. So once again, uh, amazing. The company is the founder of Morgan Keenan, uh, founder and head knife maker, and it's uh, Cudaway Knives, C-U-D-A-W-A-Y Knives. You can find them on the social channels. You can find Birch Barrel on the social channels, and you can pick yourself up one of these because you can never have too many knives. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, Ironclad Original, presented by Six Hour. You can find out more about Donald Logue uh, on the social channels, Donald Logue, and you can hit the show notes below to find more about his hardwoods, his trucking company, and everything else that we talked about on this podcast. You can get the book, Trejo, My Life of Crime, Redemption, and Hollywood, which is absolutely fantastic. The audio version has some extras in there, so be sure and pick that up, check it out, share it with friends. And if you liked our conversation, please leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. So thank you so much for tuning in. Until the next time, take care out there, be safe, keep fighting. And a special thank you to Schnee's. I've been using Schnee's boots for over a decade now. As you can tell for these ones right here, just my favorites. These are the granites. I think every hunter should have a pair of these in their quiver. But these guys right here, these are the ones that I wear when I'm going into the backcountry and hope to come out heavier than when I went in. So uh, right here, granites, awesome boot. Absolutely love these. You can see these have been worn quite a bit. These are some of my other favorites right here. So these are the Hunter 2s. These are, I would wear these all day, every day if I, if I could, but uh, um, amazing boot. Love everything they have going on over there at Schnee's. So be sure to check them out. I have some new boots now. I think I have uh, 10 pair right now. My wife has a pair uh, and then I just got a couple new pairs. And right here, these are the bear tooth. I've wanted these for a while. So super excited about trying out the bear tooths. That'll happen this summer and fall. And then the Kestrels right here. So those are a couple new pairs that I have in the arsenal that I'm looking forward to checking out here soon. So if you haven't heard of Schnee's, check them out online, check out their story, check out their Instagram, the boots they make in an Italian boot factory. So those are handmade in Italy. The only place you can get them is through Schnee's directly to you. So you're getting more boot for your money. And uh, every part of these things, uh, you can just tell how much care and how much time, energy, and effort goes into these boots right here. And what's also great about Schnee's is that you can go visit them in Bozeman, or you can give them a call and tell them about uh, where you're going to hunt, what you're doing, and uh, they can make some recommendations for you right there on the phone. So Schnee's, thank you so much. And I'm going to read this part because you get 10% off. Uh, so I don't want to mess this part up. When you shop at Schnee's, and that is S-C-H-N-E-E-S Dot com. Make sure you use the promo code Jack21, J-A-C-K-2-1. When you do, you'll save 10% off your pair of Schnee's boots and logo wear. These handmade hunting boots usually sell out fast, so grab your pair today. Take care of your feet. Don't compromise. Upgrade to Schnee's. Again, that's Schnee's, 
S-C-H-N-E-E-S.com and promo code JACK21. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels. Mm. You know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot. Like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy exactly. or right. Right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.